But a lot of it is just about surrender to the impermanence of energy and the, and the movements of energy and not not trying to control it. Again, realizing you're not really in control. It's another surrender. So, I think, you know, I've, I've written about this, I think, in both my books. I'll just keep talking through my sweater. <laughs> it's really my fault. That sleepiness is something people often struggle with and complain about in their practice, and it's seen as like, oh, it's it's in the way of what I really want to do, which is meditate. But if you're sleepy, that's your meditation. You know, what does that feel like? You know, it's really interesting to see if you can discover what sensations in your body are telling your mind that you're sleeping. They're very subtle. It's, I find it almost impossible to actually find the sensations. So that in itself is curious to me. But I think it's... so. But the principle of mindfulness, of course, is we're not trying to get rid of the things that are in our way so that we can do what we want to do. We're trying to be as conscious as we can be of what is happening. And so sleepiness is another one of those things like pain that we're so used to trying to get rid of that we never really experience it clearly. And so mostly we just have this aversive relationship to it. And that can be a problem because if you don't realize you're tired... You know, fatigue is a trigger for relapse and for addiction. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. (laughs) So, what I think we need to do with tiredness is to become aware of what it feels like and to, as with pain, to see if we can let go of aversion to it, to our disliking of it, and just be relaxed with it. I find that uh, sometimes if I, if it's late in the evening and I still have some stuff to do, maybe not mental stuff, but, you know, around the house or something, if I kind of have a sense of, like, shifting gears, like, okay, now I'm just in this space. And I just move in that energy, rather than, oh, i got to push through this. If I just kind of go with it, okay, this is where I'm at, I'm kind of tired, but I can still keep functioning. Then, there's no big problem with it. When I'm struggling with it, then it's really frustrating. If I'm not aware of it, then it's like, you know, I'm cranky, I'm hungry, and other things. Um, I didn't want to say something. <laughs> I don't know why. I so, so many weird things out of it. <laughs> So, yeah, I think it's really worth investigating like anything else in practice. Rather than, I mean, it's just interesting that our tendency is always, you know, okay, I'm mindful of desire, I'm watching that, I'm breathing, I'm letting go. I'm mindful of aversion, I'm watching sleepiness. Uh, how do I get rid of that? <laughs> oh, wow. It's not the spirit of practice. I'm just going to polish off my tea here so that I won't fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs>
embarrassing to fall asleep when you're, when you're leading the group too. Usually the, you know, the little tinge of excitement and adrenaline of being up in front keeps you awake, but not always. I've been known to fall asleep teaching and then, then you kind of like, oh, anybody see that? <laughs> Um, so, but we should meditate now, so maybe we can fall asleep <laughs> and we can all snore together. Um, yeah, let's, do, let's just do another, another sitting to get the afternoon started. I talked a bit about in the first sitting. It's really helpful and important to acknowledge as we sit down and begin our meditation whatever is going on right now, mentally and physically. There can be this idea that somehow meditation is some separate realm in the rest of my life. You know, when I start to meditate or get into this posture that I shouldn't be affected by my mood or my energy or my thoughts and concerns. But of course that's not the case. The truth is that whatever is going on as we begin our meditation is certainly going to have a pretty big effect on what we experience during the meditation. It's true that the practice itself can help to transform these things. But if we find ourselves in the middle of a meditation and caught up in some thought, we might often find that it's something we were already thinking about and worried about. So just acknowledge those things as we begin to sit and help us to let go of expectations and not be surprised by what arises. The same is true, of course, in terms of energy. If you're sitting down to meditate and you're already tired, mind is dull, then that very possibly will influence what happens as you're sitting. It doesn't mean that it's not worth sitting. Every period of meditation is different. And if we take our meditation as an opportunity to learn about our own mind, our own body, about the Dharma itself, then nothing is wasted. Everything is of some use and value. So just notice how your body is feeling right now. 
Tat Lanch. Naturally, there's that tendency to be a little drowsy. Are there concerns or worries that are really troubling you or that you've been going on around and around with? Is there some mood that you've been carrying with you today or maybe for some time? If you've been involved in some project at work or creative project, that might appear. Or even if you've been listening to music, the songs might start to play. None of this is wrong or bad. These are just things to notice, to not try to ignore, to understand that when we have trouble settling the mind or the body, it's because of these past experiences. Maybe not entirely, but to some extent. This can help us just to be accepting what is. It's all right. Practice is imperfect, of course. That's all right. Let the attention settle into the body. Try to connect with feelings in the torso, chest, and belly. You can feel the breath. The whole body moves with it the chest and belly, the back and shoulders, all moving with each breath. Moving with them too is the emotional energy, the mood energy. Oftentimes our thoughts are more conditioned and driven by 
energies in the body, emotions and sensations. You're more driven by these physical experiences and emotional experiences than by the mental itself. So rather than trying to let go of thoughts, just opening to and feeling energy in the body. Allowing that to just come and go, to, to flow through. This can actually release or almost undermine the power of the thought.
can call this practice feeling healing. It includes the breath. And the breath is used to breathe into feeling. That is, as the breath expands the body, we have the sense of the breath drawing to that place. We got the heart. Wherever the feeling is. And as we exhale, we release the tension, the holding. We let the energy, whatever form, release, disperse. your energy now, whether physical, mental, emotional. The mind becomes dull, the thoughts become spacey, usually an indication that sleepiness is happening. You might open your eyes this Take in the light.
framework for characterizing sensations is the four elements. The earth element that we experience is heaviness and density. If you can feel any heaviness and density in your body right now. any variance of temperature from head to toe. The air element, movement, vibration. And the water element, which is cohesion, moisture, which you can feel the water element in your mouth, the bloodstream, all the fluids in the body. sensitive to how posture affects energy, and the body starts to slump as we get tired, so very mindfully making an effort to remain erect.
mind now. Not to judge that. To see. Okay.
desire or energy changes through the course of the sitting. Our feelings come and go. Thoughts can't take hold. The fear disappears. The body gets tired, the body wakes up. All of this is part of the truth of impermanence, which when seen clearly helps us to let go because we see clearly that there's nothing that we can hold to since it's all constantly in flux.
So, um, anything come up in that setting that anyone wants to address? No, it's interesting. We're kind of at the end of the sitting where we're trying to stop thinking theoretically. <laughs> we ask if you have any questions. <laughs> have you been thinking about anything? So, oh no. Well, a couple things. I'd like to go into this afternoon. I'm not sure, is, is this a moment for a break? Or am I going to talk a little bit or do you want to take a little break? Or just... Okay. Yeah, I'll keep going a little bit. All right. We'll take a break in a few minutes. So, I thought what I would um, do is um, I want to kind of frame some of... Uh, Some of what I see as kind of the main areas that we kind of have to work on or have some uh, comfort with in order to have a sense of happiness. And, and, you know, first to start by saying that when I'm talking about happiness or joy and recovery, I'm not not talking about a mood, uh, about being happy, happy all the time. Uh, that in fact that uh, is a, one of the things that gets gets us into trouble with addiction because we want to be in this constant state of you know happiness, joy, or whatever. You know, we discover like a drug that makes us feel the way we want to feel, and we try to feel that way all the time. Uh, at the same time, obviously, it's difficult to be happy if we don't have some good moods. So. Uh, Moods are part of happiness, but but there are a lot of other aspects. I think that what I would call happiness is just more of like more, as I said, contentment or a sense of uh, a life that is fulfilling and uh, meaningful for us. The first thing that really directly relates to our addiction is having our values and behaviors be consistent with each other. So, are we living the, the way, are we behaving the way we think we should? And uh, this, of course, is, uh, you know, in, in addiction we are often just really acting against our own values, our own morals, our own ethics. Uh, you know, when we're intoxicated, there's such a tendency to, uh, you know, in Buddhist terms, break the precepts, you know, to, to uh, act in really unwholesome ways. And the life of the addict, and when I say addict, just to clarify again, that, you know, I'm referring to the whole range, whether it's a drug addiction or, or behavior addiction like uh, sex addiction or whether it's relationship-related, uh, interpersonal. Um, so I get for interrupting myself. Uh, that that we, you know, a lot of times we kind of, we abandon what we, our beliefs, when we're just driven by that craving. Uh, 
So, and, and then this, you know, this is something we carry into our recovery, the kind of guilt or shame around the way we've behaved. And this is, of course, a lot about what the inventory and amends process is about, is healing around that stuff. So when we come into recovery, we need to re- rediscover or discover for the first time, if we've never really been clear, what our values are, what how we really want to live, the kind of person we want to be. Uh, and this is, you know, fundamental to recovery. And I, I think it's uh, sometimes not understood by people outside the 12-step world or outside the recovery world that uh, the 12-step program isn't just about following these 12 steps, but it's really about living a very uh, wholesome and moral life that that we would give up lying and cheating and stealing, and that, uh, you know, our sexuality is really important, how we behave in those ways, our work and honesty there, honesty in relationships, all of that, which isn't explicit at all in the 12 steps. But, you know, the, the story that I love that really embodies this kind of, the, the in, integrity I was in a meeting where someone said, um, when I go to the grocery store and I push the cart out across the parking lot and empty my groceries into my car, my program is I take the cart back. I thought, now that's a program. It's like the kind of, really, that's, that's the kind of mindfulness of, you know, really moment by moment mindfulness. Not to be so selfish to realize, well, this is, just going to cause other people problems, and it's you know it's it's annoying to me to have to do it, and it's my responsibility as a good citizen. And like it's like a trivial example, but I love that kind of triviality because it points to the kind of meticulousness that I think a, a, a good recovery program uh, really suggests the way we should live, the integrity. So. You know, I, I have the chapters on these different aspects of or elements of happiness. So the first one I call Walk the Talk, Integrating Values and Behavior. And that section, Giving Up, is in there. So obviously our uh, part of integrating values and behavior is is not being acting on our addiction anymore. But it's also, you know, you know expanding what all that means. Uh, for us, and, and again, the, the Buddhist precepts of to not kill, to not steal, to not harm with our sexuality, to not lie or harm with our speech, to not use intoxicants, is another one of the models that we use for for this process. The second aspect, I would say, elements of happiness is having satisfying interpersonal relationships, having our relationships both friendly. Uh, our emotional relationships, our professional relationships, our spiritual friends and teachers. All of those relationships are really important to our happiness. And in the 12-step literature, Bill Wilson particularly talks about this, how uh, for many of us, uh, it was problems in relationships that was behind our behaviors, our destructive behaviors. And certainly... Addiction exacerbates any problems in the relationships and really makes it, when we are solely focused on our own pleasure and our own, uh, you know, 
drug, alcohol, or other abuse, we inevitably are harming others. We're not taking care of others, taking care of those relationships. Um, certain, you know, for many of us, the when we're intoxicated, we act out sexually, and this is a whole realm of recovery and spirituality. Uh, certainly, in the you know, when you look at the the uh, Buddhist monks and nuns, one of the first things they do, one of the biggest aspects of their renunciation is celibacy. Because, it, because of the power of sexual energy, uh, the challenge of, of living wholesomely with sexual energy. Uh, uh, Noah Levine quotes the Buddha. I've never seen where the Buddha says this, so that's why I quote Noah quoting the Buddha. <laughs> I, I'm not doubting him, I just haven't seen it. So that if there were two energies as powerful, if there was one other energy as powerful as sexual energy in the world, nobody would ever become enlightened. (laughs) That it's so hard to not cling in that realm, that if there was another one like that, we'd forget it, we'd all just be. So, you know, our work around that, um, certainly, uh, you know, our what I call our spiritual relationships, our relationships with teachers and sponsors, these things are so fraught and can be so complicated. I know I've had so many, just, there's Dharma teachers that I've hardly ever had, like, a direct contact with, and yet I have this conflicted relationship with them. You know? (laughs) Like, I maybe saw them give a talk once, but I've read their books and heard their talks, and it's like, wait a minute, you know? And... And so, you know, it's that's an important thing to work with and to, to deal with. And obviously our, our romantic relationships. And for me, once I got really over my desire to drink and use, which pretty much happened suddenly, as I kind of described in that piece, dealing with relationships and sexuality was the biggest part of my recovery. And it's still part of my recovery. But but fi- finding out, relearning, because I never had any idea how to be in a relationship or what was appropriate or what worked. That was just years of work. And as I say, it continues on. I mean, you know, uh, just as, you know, uh, aging or having you know years of recovery, there are new, new, you know, more and more challenges or different challenges. The challenges keep changing. There's always challenges. I've been married for uh, a while, uh, 16 years, with my wife for over 20 years. You know, it's not like oh, good, we've solved everything. Now we're just, you know. There's never a conflict. Everything's happy, happy, smooth. Of course, you know, it keeps changing. And, uh, you know, the problems of yesterday are gone, but there are new ones. And and so that, that engagement in that process, so much of our work. And the, the next piece is just having satisfying work. You know, I think that having some, uh, I think, first of all, our livelihood, it's very difficult to be happy if we spend 40 or more hours a week doing something that we 
really either don't care about or really don't like. And this, I think, is probably one of the biggest challenges in our culture for people. To make money at something that you enjoy is it's very difficult to do. So, I think part of our task is to find ways to engage in things that maybe aren't the things that we care the most about. I mean, when I, when I got out of graduate school, um, I started working as a technical writer in software companies. That wasn't my life's ambition, you know. It, it was something I just kind of fell into because I had a degree in writing and there weren't a lot of jobs in the, you know, want ads for writers. And there was something, okay. But, you know, once I started to do it, I found, well, the work itself was challenging and made me think and I could engage in it. And that when I had problems, it was really my internal resistance to either I don't feel like it or this isn't what I really want to do. And so those were things that I could work on in myself. They weren't the fault of the work itself. And I was able to see that ultimately the work was service. It wasn't, you know, feeding starving people, but it was creating documentation for people who needed to understand how to work software programs. So I was helping people in some way. And it, when you look at it, almost every legal profession, and some illegal ones, are providing service. And this is the, the bigger reason for jobs. You know, our civilization, our nations, our economies, are built on everybody doing a part that lets the whole system keep running. And as individuals, we think of our jobs as being something I need to do for me to get money, to have some personal satisfaction, to maybe be of service to some people. But most of us probably don't think of ourselves as part of a system, part of this large system. But that's what most of us are. And the system, in some sense, which doesn't isn't a personal thing, but if we imagined a system that had a mind, it wouldn't really be concerned about your personal uh, feeling about your job. It would only be concerned that this function needs to happen to keep the system functioning. And so we're actually all being of service in our work, even when it doesn't look uh, particularly spiritual. And so that's why I think it's one of the most helpful ways to look at work is from the realm of intention. And, and the Buddha talked about intention being the real uh, a driver of karma. It's what we, the motivation and the intention that we bring to our actions that really determines the type of results that come from our actions. So if we are working with a sense of service, of supporting something bigger than ourselves, then I think that allows us to enjoy and connect in another way. Well, the next piece that I think is 
vital for happiness is cultivating an, our inner life. Of course, that's what meditation is about. It's what we could, spirituality is founded in this, in the you know, in the understanding that happiness comes from within. These sort of cliches and obvious things, and yet most of the time we're trying to generate happiness from without, which is an interesting word in and of itself. Generating happiness from without. If you, without something, you don't have But from the outside in. And of course, a lot of the 12-step work is, is inner work. Our inventory, our uh, prayer and meditation, our uh, the pro- step six and seven where we, uh, as it says in steps, humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. Well, what that's uh, kind of biblical, but uh, you know when we um, do the work to bring about change within ourselves. I don't think that um, true happiness can exist without a really uh, flourishing inner life. And and one of the you know miracles we already talked about some today is the incredible power of the mind to transform our experience just through these tools of meditation. This next piece fits with with work, but it can be inside or outside of work, and that is the element of creativity. Um, I think that creativity is a vital aspect of happiness. But I define creativity in a very broad way. I think that humans are inherently creative. Uh, that when you make a sandwich... It can be a creative exercise, you know, and, and the way we think about things, the way we process things, is inherently creative. It's one of the things that makes human beings so remarkable. Obviously, you know, we have activities like the arts that are considered creative. Uh, and I think that that those types of activities are very healing for many people and really bring a lot of happiness. I, you know, as as someone who's kind of thrived in those realms, I can see that there's something very special about the the creative process because when one engages in it, first of all, the engagement itself is absorbing, and absorption is inherently pleasurable. So when we have something that we really can engage in, whether it's you know throwing pots or writing books or playing an instrument or painting or uh, the range of, of arts, it gives us a place of refuge, just an organic kind of refuge. The added element that I think makes it particularly satisfying and joy-inducing, is that when we make art, we, when we're done, or even as we're in the process, we see 
that we have done something. Something has come from us. And there's something inherently satisfying about that. That nobody did it for us. It's, it's really, um, you know, our creation in, you know, in the narrow sense of that idea. And that that just feels good. There's a real joy and pleasure in that. So, uh, again, I don't think everybody has to be an artist per se, but finding activities that where we can absorb into and use our minds. I mean, this is where, again, it can be very challenging in our culture between work and, and time. Uh, you know, well, do I not, if I don't have a work that's really absorbing and created for me, can, you know, can I make time for it? I just think it's invaluable. You know, one, one of my novels that was never published, I wrote entirely on weekends. You know, uh, that was when I was working full time in a day job. And, you know, I was going to meetings and I was even doing some, I might have even been doing some Dharma teaching very early on. But I would go to meditation groups. And on the weekends, Saturday and Sunday morning, I would spend two hours each day just writing. And it took me a couple of years, but so what? You know, I had a novel. It was crap, but, you know, it was <laughs> But that process is so fulfilling, you know. Um, it's 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 that mental absorption, and, and for some of us, it's an intellectual process that we really need to use our minds in that way. And for some of us, it's more of an emotional or even spiritual process. I mean, I never talked to my father very much about work. I was the youngest in my family. My father was in his 40s when I was born. We didn't have a close emotional relationship. Um, he was a patent attorney, which if you want to know what that is, you're going to have to look it up. Because I don't <laughs> he worked for the Bethlehem Steel Company. You know, he drove off in the morning. He came back at night. That was all I knew. And, uh, you know, I do have a sense that patent law is very uh, dry and requires a really careful, meticulous mind. And that's the kind of mind my father had. He was very smart, and I know he could just take that stuff apart piece by piece and, and understand it and think it through. And I'm sure that there was a pleasure in that, that he took great pleasure in that legal work, which you would think, well, that's, is there something creative in that? Of course there is. You know, of course the mind has to really be able to work things through and look at different angles and solve problems, and all of that is the work of creativity. It doesn't create work, that doesn't create a work of art, but this is uh, uh, where we find, I mean, we have to find our own joy, find the ways to our own joy. So the last piece that I would talk about is an element of happiness. And, and you know, I, I confess that I made all this up. So there might, you know, if, you, if there are other things that you think should be in my book, there's still time. You know, please let me know. Because I just, you know, I, I was writing, I started writing this, and I was going to write the book around just the 12 steps. And I got going, and I was like, it's just not really what I want to do again. Okay. 
And there is stuff about the 12 steps in here, which I might go into later. But as I was working it out, I said, oh, let me write a chapter about what I think are the elements of happiness. And after I wrote that chapter, I looked at it and went, oh, this is the outline of the book. So, um, so the last piece is having fun. Um, another thing that can often get lost in the recovery world, we can forget. Because, uh, you know, when I got sober, I, I remember, I think it was before I got sober, actually, that one of the things that, you know, one of my last, you know, trying to hold on, uh, one of the last things I was trying to hold on to, or, or that was keeping me holding on, was this idea that, well, if I stop drinking, my life is just going to be one gray, flat, boring place. And as though I was really having a lot of fun, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, what did I think my life was then? But it seemed like that was my fun, that was my pleasure. And of course, you know, when we first start to drink and use or act out whatever our addiction is, you go to Las Vegas, yeah, it's fun. I mean, that's one of the reasons we get into it. But for most of us, it stopped being fun a long time ago. And the truth is, we forgot how to have fun. <laughs> and we, you know, recovery is partly kind of a return to innocence, which is one of my little chapter headings in here, sub-chapter headings. Kind of finding the, the fun of life, which is usually much more simple than our supposedly adult pleasures. You know, it's to me, you know, when you when you look at the activities that are that only adults are supposed to be able to do, drinking, uh, I guess, sex, pornography, you know, that whole realm of uh, sex, sexual entertainment, adult entertainment, gambling. Um, I don't know. There's one or two others. They're all. Ways that we get addicted, right? And they're all very numbing. Smoking, you know, they're all, they're all very numbing and dulling. And somehow, I mean, I think that partly all of that, all of those activities are. I'm finding myself, you know, covering myself here because uh, that they're they are protections against the pain that we that we experience as we're. Aging as we're growing, you know, life is difficult. The Buddha said, you know. "It's there are wounds, and many of us experience a lot of wounds and trauma before we become adults. And when we become adults, one of the reasons we get into addiction is to suppress and 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 numb those wounds. So this." That's you know one of the things many of us have to deal with in recovery. But one of the ways I think to find our joy in recovery is to find those those almost child childish or childhood pleasures. You know, gee, love to ride a bike. I mean, the the number of people now riding bikes, and obviously 
Yeah, they're working and they're getting in shape and all that stuff, but there's this joy in it, right? I mean, there's nothing quite like the feeling of riding a bike. It's like flying, right? That's what's so fun about it. You're just in space. You're just moving through space. I mean, what a joyful thing to do. Um, when, when I was, you know, early in recovery, I still had a band. And my favorite gigs, we used to play at this um, AA clubhouse in Southern California. And it was the only place I ever played where, as soon as we started to play, everybody started to dance. They didn't have to wait for two sets to get half drunk and hit on the person at the end of the bar before they could get out on the dance floor. They just were there to have fun, you know, and that sense of, wow, ease and freedom, and this is just, it's fun to dance, wow, go figure. Um, I, I confess that my, my joy, my practice now, is playing golf. When I was a kid, I played golf all the time. My, my lawyer father, you know, provided the uh, membership to the country club. You know. So I grew up playing golf. Of course, when I started to drink and use, I was like, forget it. First of all, I had no money, but I also, I was a hippie, and I was like, hippies don't play golf. <laughs> <laughs> That's for old white guys. Now I'm an old white guy. <laughs> But, you know, I, I took James Barris's Awakening Joy course a few years ago, and he has an exercise where you kind of make a list of all the things that you enjoy. Everything from, you know, chocolate to meditation retreats to golf. Oh, wow. Yeah, I still kind of wish it. And I started playing golf, and, uh, you know, I get this thrill, and it's very funny. I noticed that as I'm approaching the golf course, or sometimes even planning to go, there's this excitement, this, and it's, it's. I feel like a kid, and I know it's because it was an activity I did when I was a kid, and so we. I, I really think that I'm very programmed that this activity has to be with, do with being a child, and there's, you know, that that childish feeling comes over. So, and, and that. For me, one of the things about doing that and even saying that in a Buddhist center, you know, in Santa Cruz, too. <laughs> you have some great golf courses here, by the way. Some of the best in the world. Right down the road. Maybe considered maybe the greatest golf course in the world, Pebble Beach. That I will never play there. But um, it's sort of embarrassing to me. It's sort of like when I first had to start to sit in a chair and I couldn't sit on a cushion. It's like you're not a real meditator anymore because you can't sit with your legs crossed. And it's like, what kind of a Buddhist are you that you, you know, if you look in my trunk of my car, you'll see my golf clubs, you know. Uh, <laughs> it just somehow doesn't seem right, but... Yeah. So, so uh, as I was going to say, it's like, just being able to just be, you know, I am who I am, and, and rather than, oh, it's not cool, I'm not going to do it, you know. I mean, how many of us, like, were like that when we were too cool? You know, it was like, you know, I'm not going to do stuff that I would like to do because it's not cool. I mean, my daughter's 15, so, you know, <laughs> I get to see this on a daily basis, you know. It's not cool. I can't, I can't wear that. It's not cool. So find your fun. So, um, we should, 
take a break, and we can take a break now, or if there are just any thoughts. I know that was probably a lot of content, but yeah. I, this is the first time I've heard addressed, and this is, does it need an answer? But it, it just, I grapple with that, with mindfulness, uh, not recovery, but mindfulness, the fact that, you know, I love music, and I, I find myself cranking it up and Oh yeah. And just pounding the side of the door because I find oh, yeah. <laughs> I I become drunk with music. Mm. Music and uh, sunsets yeah. lots of other things. Uh, film. Just yeah. things that make me mindless. And that and that gives me a lot of conflict because I have the spontaneity and this uh, love for for things that make me mindless, especially music. I, I wouldn't call that mindless at all. Well, and then, well, I do become mindless. And then the other thing that I grapple with, I think about it a lot, is art. Mm-hmm. So much art comes from suffering. Yeah. Like beautiful poetry, silly class. Yeah. And and symphonies from struggle. And Van Gogh and Van Gogh from insanity. And and uh, or just he needed glasses. I don't know. What it <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what I you, grapple with. But you, being, you know, being a, a student, yep. or a, a participant, or a person of mindfulness. But I feel like that other part of me, I have to, I can't I think that that mindfulness gets misrepresented as this just totally detached, you know, I have no feelings, I'm just observing everything, (laughs) Uh, nothing bothers me, you know, what's that song, nothing bad ever happens to me, (laughs) you Mindfulness is being engaged in the present moment. I remember, I sat down with Joseph Goldstein. I mean, do you know who he is? Yeah. Okay. So, pretty reputable teacher. At the end of a three-month retreat, during which, by the way, I wrote a bunch of songs, which I wasn't supposed to do. <laughs> and I said to Joseph, you know, I, it feels weird, because, you know, all the people in these, this retreat seem to be like therapists and you know, body workers and stuff. And I'm a musician. I mean, you know, I don't know how to really... How, how can I do that with my practice? He said, music is a perfect mindfulness practice. If you are playing music and your mind wanders, you miss it. If you're listening to music and your mind wanders, you you miss it. So, and and because of its nature, it draws your attention. So it's easy to be with it. The... As I think I started the day by saying the Buddha didn't say we shouldn't enjoy ourselves. He said we shouldn't cling to it and try to keep reproducing the same uh, happiness. Fully engaging in life is mindfulness. Being enraptured by the sunset is mindfulness. Believe me, you cannot cling on to the sunset. You know, (laughs) you don't have to worry. 
the song is going to end. It's fine. You know? And so those things are just to be enjoyed, to be, you know, we're not, if you're a monk, there are certain behaviors, you know, you, yeah, you're not supposed to listen to music, blah, blah. But there's a beautiful story, it's, it's in the commentaries, about Ananda, who was the, the Buddha's attendant, his cousin, his attendant for 25 years. And, and they're having a meal, and Ananda says, it's so amazing, you know, the, the Ananda is always the foil for the Buddha's teaching, so he always says the wrong thing. So Ananda says, it's so amazing that the Tathagata, which is what the Buddha is called, and the Tathagata can have this meal, and it doesn't matter, he has nothing, the flavor means nothing to him. And the Buddha says, you know, you are wrong, Ananda. Every bite of this food is absolute bliss for me. Here, have a bite. And the Buddha, through his psychic powers, is able to give Ananda the, his own experience. This is what the, this bowl of rice tastes like to me, the enlightened Buddha. And Ananda takes a bite, and his mind just it's like, whoa, that's the, the, it's like brown rice that tastes like ambrosia, you know. And, that, uh, uh, and the, so the Buddha is like, no, he takes great pleasure in his meal, but he doesn't go, oh, you know, I need seconds or whatever, you know, it's, it's like just, he takes pleasure in, in the experience of it. And, and clarity of mindfulness increases our pleasure. I mean, I've had this experience. I mean, it, 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 food doesn't quite taste like that. But on retreat, I you know, you have moments, you eat, you eat some rice. It's beautiful. And it's not like you're supposed to go, oh, I know. Doesn't matter. No. <laughs> be there. Be there fully for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think it's really, really important point. I remember there was a poet actually who used to come to the meditation group in Berkeley. She would say, Oh, you know, I, I don't know, how, how am I supposed to write poetry and be mindful at the same time? It's like, how can you not be? It's not about being separate, it's about being totally engaged. And to, the thing is, concentration and mindfulness are go hand in hand. Sometimes, if we are absorbed in an activity, then concentration is dominating a little bit more than the observing quality of mindfulness. But that's, concentration is just as important as, as mindfulness. So, so we absorb ourselves in the, in the work to be absorbed in it. This is, this is completely in accord with the path. I thought about that. Um, I think for me, um, the reason why at times it can be difficult to be absorbed in that moment is because I'm afraid of letting go because I don't, you know, in the past haven't always trust my own. Right. We let go in the wrong way. Right. Right. And so it's the, you know, like for example, not wanting to let emotions, when I first started meditating, I was scared to death of of letting that space happen because yeah. there were emotions coming up and I didn't want to deal with them and I was afraid of them because I felt like if I turned the faucet on it would just flood the whole house right. and so I think that that experience in the recovery of learning moderation mm-hmm. and and the same mm-hmm. in meditation where you're you sort of see the cloud go by and mm-hmm. you curious, curiously identify like okay this is I see you anger, I see you whatever, and then watch it go past. 
and bring back to the breath was really helpful to me because it taught me some level of, or it's teaching me some level of moderation with things, but I can still sit in that moment of beauty and wonder and feel it and experience it without feeling afraid that I'm going to <laughs> let it lead yes. me down a path of self-indulgence or whatever. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation and important. There's no doubt that especially if we have these addictive tendencies, that we have to keep a certain amount of vigilance. And the Buddha talks about uh, different mind states that need to be uh, treated in different ways. And he describes it as, it's about a shepherd who at different times, I'm trying to remember the exact simile, but it's like there are certain times when he has to stay really on top of the sheep and really make sure that they're all together and nobody's running off. And then there's other times when he can just sit back under the tree and kind of relax and just kind of keep a a view of the pasture and everything's okay. And that's kind of the way we are with our minds. We kind of, we kind of have to see, oh, like, this is kind of a risky place. Maybe I, I need to bring up a little vigilance. I can't, I'm not just going to like jump in. And other times it's like, no, it's okay. I can just let this flow. And, and uh, that's right effort. You know, it's kind of knowing, having a sense. And, uh, uh, you know, mindfulness is always part of this equation. Having a sense of what we need to do in certain circumstances. And this grows, and we, you know, we, it's a, it's a trial and error where we learn to do that and make mistakes, and, and uh, certainly this applies both to the practical elements of moment-to-moment meditation practice, as well as the bigger questions of when can I just, like, dance around the house, and when do I need to get out the vacuum cleaner and clean things up, you know, what, what's the appropriate action? And, and that's, I think, the... You know, that's why I start this talking about integrating values and behavior. We need to, you know, take care of that fundamental level of responsibility and living with integrity in our lives uh, before we kind of let loose. Because um, that's just, you know, that, that's that's maturity, right? Is, is knowing. I mean, it's like, you know, go into my daughter's bedroom, you know, and you'll see, okay, that's what happens when you just don't have boundaries, you know, <laughs> you just, oh, throw stuff off, right, you know, and and then, you know, you come into my wife in my bedroom. It's not perfectly cleaned up, there's a few, you know, there's some slippers on the floor, and maybe a shirt on, but it's kind of manageable, because we're mature, you know, <laughs> like, we can let it slip a little bit, but it doesn't get out of control, but my daughter doesn't have the maturity to, like, know how to, that she can, yeah, you can leave this there for now and that, but if you never clean up, <laughs> it becomes a disaster. Mm-hmm. Can't wait to see what happens next few years. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, let's, let's take a little break and, and we'll have one more. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.